This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast, April 2023. Ryan, how you doing? Ah, it's a beautiful fall day. It's a beautiful spring day. <laughs> are the cherry blossoms out? They are. They are. You cannot drive anywhere in DC right now, otherwise you're stuck in hours of traffic and just hordes of people trying to see the cherry blossoms for the brief few moments that they're blossoming. Oh, we live in a place of tremendous beauty that people visit from all around the world. It's so terrible. <laughs> it's, uh, it's awful. <laughs> become a true Washington, D.C. Yes. It's like the hordes that come to look at our trees. Right. Anyway, let's hop in. Ryan, I think you're going first. Yeah, we got a big, thick issue this month, so we'll just get right to it. The first article that we're going to talk about that's in this issue is called Empirically Derived Age-Based Vital Signs for Children in the Out-of-Hospital Setting. Our lead author here is Sriram Grambakabal, and they are at Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. And this is an article that asks a question about the validity of pediatric vital signs. And it's kind of a fun approach to how they ask it. Mostly, in conceptual terms, we use vital signs as sort of a warning signal for potential serious illness. Serious illnesses require intervention to prevent poor outcomes. Therefore, at least one of the purposes of measuring vital signs is to determine which patients may require interventions. So perhaps the better approach to vital signs is to empirically derive cutoff points for abnormals that accurately predict the need for subsequent interventions. That is effectively the approach here in this paper, using 3.7 million pediatric encounters from the Nemesis datasets, also known as the National EMS Information System. The authors collate all the vital sign observations from this cohort, stratify them by age, and then link them to any recorded procedures published in Nemesis. The comparison for their statistically derived thresholds are the age-specific vital sign thresholds from Pediatric Advanced Life Support, or PALS. They find, overall, PALS is not great. Using the standard PALS criteria, 75% of patients in this <laughs> EMS sample had at least one abnormal vital sign. However, using the 10th and 90th percentile from their empirically derived data set as criteria, these derived vital sign cutoffs were abnormal in only 46%. A greater proportion of this subset of patients had at least one procedure, as compared to PALS. So, a win. But I guess that's pretty low-hanging fruit, and more an indictment of PALS vital sign cutoffs as being so nonspecific and all-encompassing that virtually any other model creating a smaller partition of the cohort will improve in that respect. That said, this is less an issue with what they've achieved, which has face validity despite the limitations of their data set, and more to do with their methods for validation of their vital sign cutoffs. A more robust external validation with better descriptive statistics and linkage not to surrogates of illness procedures, but to actual patient-oriented outcomes would be the next steps in progressing their findings towards usability. Yeah, I mean, like if you derive vital signs off a cohort and then validate it off that same cohort, it's not surprising it works better than another vital sign metric that you're using. That being said, why hasn't anyone done this before? <laughs> it seems like something we should have done a long time ago. What are normal right? vital like... signs? Well, let's find out. And I, I like the approach, though, like that whole concept of like an abnormal vital sign, the point of using it to predict something that you're going to have to act upon. Right. Like that should be right. the whole point of these right right and that's in theory that should be what pals is pals is based upon too not just actual abnormals because we see so many people with like pews scores of you know whatever that we end up sending home with hardly doing anything right i just think it's amazing it's 2023 and we still don't have an accurate vital sign guideline for children so no it's good stuff but yes they need external validation before we can go farther because validating it on the same set that you've derived it has its problems 
All right, moving on. Our next article is competency standard derivation for point of care ultrasound image interpretation for emergency physicians. And the lead author is Maya Harrell Sterling. So for those of us that completed residency during the era of bedside ultrasound, I think we all remember stressing over completing the required number of scans for each anatomic ultrasound category before completing residency. And I'll ask you, how many of you have referred to those numbers since you graduated residency? I imagine not many. So these authors propose that a quantity-based assessment is not necessarily the most reliable method of assessing competency. And the goal of this study was to derive a performance-based competency standard. They performed a multi-phase prospective study. In phase one, the authors divided ultrasound images into three categories of interpretation, difficult to interpret, easy, or intermediate. They looked at four categories of ultrasound, soft tissue, lung, cardiac, and FAST exams. They then, using a four-person expert panel, categorized the cases as low, medium, or high clinical significance. In phase three, they used a stakeholder-driven discussion to assess the minimum acceptable percent scores of cases classified by difficulty and significance to assess whether someone is competent in ultrasound. And in phase four, they tested their emergency physicians based on the difficulty, the clinical significance, and their acceptable percent scores that they derived in the first three stages. Overall, they tested 379 emergency medicine attendings or postgraduate trainees in four countries, Canada, US, Switzerland, and United Kingdom. This was a total of over 67,000 image interpretations with a median of 184 interpretations per case. Overall, the competency-based score was 85% for lung, 89% for cardiac, 90% for soft tissue, and 92.7% for fast. So I think this paper brings up a number of interesting points. First, and most importantly, is this idea of assessing competency using an assessment of skill rather than just numbers. And this can be applied to many other competencies outside of ultrasound. Now, the study doesn't actually demonstrate that skill-based competency metric is superior to one to simply use as number, but it's still an interesting idea. It also demonstrates a nice framework if someone wants to enact a competency-based system such as this. It's clear looking at what they did and the amount of work went into it, it's much harder than it is to just simply count how many scan each resident has completed during their residency. And so I think we need a little more evidence suggesting that this is a superior method before we implement it, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I think when I look at this, the first thing I think about is, oh my God, the administrative overhead (laughs) of doing this sort of competency evaluation of this level of number of scans to ensure that people are finishing or graduating with a certain level of competence is just a giant unpaid mandate almost. Like, you know, if you were supposed to try to implement this in your residency program, you'd have to have a faculty member who would have to spend all this time and who had to have the credentials to start with and so on and so forth, which is why you really have to compare this specific sort of rigorous standard to how good are people if they just get to the level of numbers. So recording cases doesn't say anything about competency, just a sheer number of cases, but it's potentially, at least in theory, a surrogate for having seen enough cases to develop a certain level of competency. And so they really have to do a comparison of this much more laborious model to a much less laborious model of just actually recording the numbers. Or you can come up with a hybrid program where it's numbers plus a little bit of scans, but I don't think you want people doing too much of this sort of competency-based, just looking at grading scans and all the work that goes into that. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard. It's obviously more ideal, right? And again, you could apply this outside of ultrasound. Like how many central lines do you need before you're competent? I don't know. It's not probably the number exactly for everybody, but sitting at the bedside and grading everybody's competency is a much harder thing to do than simply saying you need this many central lines to be deemed competent. How many pericardius and sims do you need? <laughs> right. How many pacer wire right. sims do you need? <laughs> right. Right. At some point, we have to graduate emergency physicians. And so there's obviously a compromise that has to be made. Yeah. Well, the next article, moving again, is called Association of Prescription Drug Monitoring Programs with Opioid Prescribing and Overdose in Adolescents and Young Adults. Our lead author here is Michael S. Tose, and they are at Boston Children's Hospital. A lot of us grew up with PDMPs, Prescription Drug Monitoring Programs, in our states. Some of them are optional. Some of them actually became mandated. And it makes sense that having a central data source for opiate prescribing would be a useful resource. But what effect, if any, are they truly having on one, first, prescribing, and second, on patient-oriented outcomes? And this is a children and adolescents paper looking at the effects of implementation of PDMPs on this specific population. Using an interrupted time series analysis, the authors took solely states with mandatory use requirements, combined them with administrative claims data from a U.S. commercial health insurance company, and identified dispensed opioid prescriptions using Cerner Multi and put it all into the statistical blender together. The results are a little bit challenging to interpret because they're predicated on assumptions of projected trend lines. For example, across each state time series evaluated, the number of opioid prescriptions was already declining. However, across each time series, the number of overdoses was climbing. So their analysis entails trying to determine if the implementation of the mandatory use PDMPs changed those specific trend lines assuming those trajectories were going to be sustained, and the trend line for overdoses was an exponential increase. That said, the only observed associations favor the implementation of PDMPs in both reduced prescribing and observed rates of overdoses. Association is not causation, with many opportunities for confounding, but it is reasonable to suggest with low certainty an effect of PDMP on patient outcomes. Yeah, I think that's generous. It's hard to know, just given this data, what the actual effect was. And of course, we never in any of this data look at the harm and see if people are not given opiate prescriptions that would help them because of the PMDP. And so, yeah, I don't really know what more to make of this article. I think just given the limitations, it's hard to know if it actually did anything good or not. And we haven't even gotten to like equity and ethnicity issues and broken it down right. by those sorts of things. This is the broadest possible right. brush at state level. Right. And the trend lines, you know, so you really have no idea that there's an actual causation event here that changes the trend line. But there is some face validity with fewer opioids in circulation, you're going to have fewer overdoses. So that's probably okay, but it's just a suggestion of an impact. Yeah, but there's just as much face validity as that you don't prescribe someone opiates, they turn to opiates on <sighs> the street and then they overdose from it, right? Because it's non-controlled. And so you could go either way with the face validity. It's hard to know. I mean, I think we have evidence that that was some of the leading causes of overdose in the past years. When we mm. started to be more restrictive of our prescription drugs, people turned to street opiates, which are far less controlled and safer. And so we saw an increase in overdose. Yeah, and so the face validity is the face validity. I just think with the <laughs> data, a, the I, I don't alluring know which way to face go. validity without any kind yeah. of uh, <laughs> yeah. concrete data to back it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if you want these things to work, this data shows that they work, you know, like, but it's hard to know if they really do or not, unfortunately. Yeah. 
All right. Our next article is extended release naltrexone and case management for treatment of alcohol use disorder in the emergency department. And the lead author is Charles Murphy. So these authors wanted to see what would happen when you initiate treatment of alcohol use disorder with extended release naltrexone and case management services in the emergency department. And they conducted a two-week prospective open-label single-arm study of a multimodal treatment for alcohol use disorder. And this consisted of monthly extended-release naltrexone injections and case management services. They enrolled adult patients presenting to the emergency department who were actively drinking patients. I don't know if they meant actively drinking in the emergency department, but it's sort of read that way. Patients who were actively drinking around the time when they presented to the ED and had a suspected or known alcohol use disorder. And they had to have an audit C score of more than four, which is a 12-point score assessing your risk of alcohol use disorder. A total of 179 patients were approached, and only 32 of these were enrolled, so 18%. Of the 32, only 25 completed all the visits, and only 22 continued naltrexone after the trial was over. What they found was the mean baseline daily alcohol consumption in these patients was about 7.6 drinks per day, and the quality of life score was 3.6 on a 7-point scale. The mean daily alcohol consumption change was actually 7.5 drinks per day. So someone was drinking 0.1 drink per day. And the mean quality of life change was 1.2. And so, you know, on face value, I think this seems pretty positive. A drop of 7.5 drinks per day seems like a clinically meaningful outcome. The change in life score seems a little more obscure. But I think there's a couple problems here that we can't just take this completely as what it is. One, there was no control group, right? So our patients who are willing to be enrolled in the emergency department to actually intervene on their drinking habits, would they do just as well if they just had counseling? Or are these the patients who want to quit anyway? And then two is you can see we went from 179 to 32 to 25 to 22. What is the sustained use of something like this? And do you see patients who have sustained abstinence after this trial is over? And again, that's unclear. Yeah, I think the key is that uh, going from 179 people, and the first the first step in uh, eliminating people is the 88 who have no interest in the study. And so you've already ruled out all the people who have no interest in changing their behaviors, and you only are left with people who have some potential interest in changing their behaviors. And then you exclude all the other sorts of things that would make it more likely that they would fail or be not receptive to treatment. And then you're left with this tiny little fraction, which is great. So this may actually show you that this is the target population for you to deploy an intervention. But then you need some sort of sham intervention of some sort or at least a comparator intervention where you don't have all these intensive things and you just have like a text message or a phone call saying, how's your drinking going kind of thing. The minimally, some sort of spectrum of evaluation that shows you which components of the intervention are the most valuable because this is a big investment and then you need longer term outcomes. Like as you said, 12 weeks is just not enough. So if you're going to put a big investment into it and it's a worthy thing to invest in, you still need to know exactly what has the greatest value and how much it's going to cost overall in the end to get a specific return on investment. Yeah. All right. We'll head on to the next article, which is called A Systematic Review with Pairwise and Network Meta-Analysis of Closed Reduction Methods for Anterior Shoulder Dislocation. Our lead author here is Shiro Gonai, and they are at St. Luke's International University in Tokyo, Japan. Now that the rocuronium versus succinylcholine debate has been settled, (laughs) rocuronium has won, (laughs) we need to find new things to debate. And why not? What's the best method for reducing a shoulder? We've come a long way from putting the foot in the armpit. When I was training, scapular manipulation and soothing massage were sort of the rage. And now we have a couple more techniques, notably circulating around like being the fairs technique or the park technique. And this is a systematic review and network meta-analysis of shoulder reduction techniques. 
the network meta-analysis being a sort of way of comparing A to C when studies only compare A to B and B to C. And the list of eponyms included is substantial. We've got the Kocher, the Milch, the Janecki, the Cunningham, the Stimson, the Spazo, the Boss Holzock Mater, the Bossley, etc. But the corpus identified in their systematic review is actually much smaller. There's only 14 articles, none of which were performed in the United States, and most of which enrolled somewhere between 40 and 100 patients with substantial risks of bias identified. The winner, if you can truly crown a winner from these limited data, is FAIRS, ranking first or second for success, pain and reduction, and time to reduction. Honorable mentions include the boss holzock modder technique and modified external rotation, which were also present at the top of their little rankings. Michael Gottlieb writes an editorial where he looks at this and says, well, great, these rankings have some face validity because yes, we've done the FAIRS technique ourselves and it does work. But as we all know, patients are all created a little bit differently, with different levels of pain tolerance, different muscle mass, different ligamentous laxity. So it is reasonable to know at least a couple different techniques, which fits with the repertoire of most emergency physicians. Yeah, I mean, this always seems a little silly to me. It's like there has to be one technique that rules them all, right? Like you're trying to express an idea, which is you have to relax the muscles and you have to be able to manipulate the humerus back into the glenoid, right? And you can express that in different ways. And it might be different depending on the patient, depending how long it was out, depending on variables. And so... Sometimes you use one technique, but when one technique fails, you often use a second or a third, right? And being able to use those things. And then we haven't even got into whether you're using sedation or you're using interarticular lidocaine and all the other tools that you use to relax the shoulder muscles. And so I think trying to identify one technique is probably not the right answer, rather like, hey, these are the goals you have to accomplish and these are the tools we have to accomplish them. Yeah, I figure that you should have two or three good go-to techniques that you can switch to in the middle of a shoulder relocation. And I think that's basically what most people finish training with that sort of repertoire. So I don't think anybody does any of those. And in fact, I've actually never really seen anybody have a dangerous or a serious harm resulting from an attempted closed reduction. So we pretty much do a good job regardless. But it's always nice to see some new ideas and new techniques because that's what we do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always nice showing different ways because I, I think the most effective techniques are ones that apply like a constant pressure that is low enough intensity. You don't get the muscles to bite back at you and you yourself who are doing it doesn't get tired and you can like just outweight the muscles until they relax. And then obviously when you add intraarticular lidocaine or something like propofol, which relaxes the muscles quicker, you'll have more efficacy. You just have added side effects slash time slash resources when you add those things. Because let's be honest here. I mean, we're talking about what we're doing in the emergency department. And one of these methods that we've mentioned here is basically the patient reducing it themselves with their hands over yeah. their knees. Like a lot of people do in the pre-hospital settings, so they never have to come to the emergency department in the first place. It's one of those things. It's like we're trying just to be a little bit better, a little bit more competent than what most people can do at home by themselves who have like recurrent yeah. shoulder dislocations or have their dislocations on the sports field like rugby players and so on and so forth. Right. And I think it's a selection bias too, right? Like when one, people that you can get the shoulder back in on the sports field, it's just an easier shoulder reduce too. It's early <laughs> on. The muscle hasn't tightened up on you. Like in my other career, when we do jujitsu, we have people pop their shoulder out all the time on the mats. I reduce shoulders like once a month. And, you know, you just have to gently tug on it at that point. Like, like it's so relaxed and loose, it pops right back in. But as the muscle starts to get tight and as the patient cools down, it becomes much, much harder to get the shoulder in, right? And so it's just you have different techniques for different patients in different times in their injury. Sounds good. All right. 
I think we said very little about the actual favor and more about our opinions on shoulder reduction, but important nonetheless. <laughs> All right. Our next article is HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis in the emergency department, the systematic review. And the lead author is Miranda Ann Gormley. So the data suggests that pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP is fairly effective at preventing HIV, but how effective are programs implementing this in the emergency department? These authors conducted a systematic review regarding studies examining use of PrEP in the emergency department. They searched Medline, Ovid, PsychInfo, and the Cumulative Index of Nursing and Allied Literature from January 2013 to January 2020. Overall, they identified 345 articles. Out of these, seven were deemed eligible for inclusion in their final analysis. Due to heterogeneity of the results, they weren't able to perform a meta-analysis, so simply just presented the results. All seven articles used a set of eligibility criteria to identify patients within the ED, with each article applying various numbers of criteria to identify it. So basically, they were kind of all over the board. Most of them used some criteria that are recommended by the CDC's 2017 PrEP guidelines. However, some studies identified in selected patients based on a combination of chart review and patient interview. Six articles included at least one outcome on PrEP cascade of care. Three reported the proportion of population who are aware of PrEP when presenting to the emergency department, and this ranged from 8.3% to 40.5%. Five articles reported the proportion of patients who were interested in HIV PrEP, ranging from 2.3% to 46.4% and the proportion of patients who are linked to follow-up appointments to receive PrEP, ranging again from 2.3% to 19.4%. The proportion of individuals who receive PrEP treatment ranged from one2 to 2.2%. And none of the articles actually reported the retention of PrEP over 36 or 90 days. So I think this is a thorough review. You see that there's not that much data out on it. Out of all the articles review, they were only able to find seven that actually met their entry criteria. And while we know PrEP is effective, it's still pretty unclear how effective it is to implement it in the emergency department. You can see the actual range of one, awareness and interest and follow-up appointment varied all across the board. In an editorial published alongside this paper, Jason Hakus et al. stressed these points. And they say, while PrEP initiation through the emergency department may be an important step at reaching vulnerable populations that wouldn't be able to get this care anywhere else. It's unclear, one, how effective it is and how best to implement it through the emergency department with the resources we currently have. Yeah, I think that's the key. If for anything that requires some sort of follow-up and sort of like, you know, refills and rechecks and blood work and those sorts of things, it really suffers when you have a fragmented health system. And it's going to be really dependent upon whether the patients have a lot of access to things and have the means to pay for it too. So things can change, at least as far as PrEP coverage. And some of the things are, you know, there's always new, unfortunately, new developments at the federal government level about what's covered under preventative treatments. I think PrEP is actually probably in danger of being uncovered at the moment, at least as of this recording. So it's something that should be easy to initiate, but unfortunately it just isn't. Yeah, yeah. And even if we can initiate it, I think it's hard to get it to take and actually have a meaningful result from it. All right, moving on. Like I said, it's a big issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's go on to implementation of an electronic alert to improve timeliness of second dose antibiotics for patients with suspected serious infections in the emergency department, a quasi-randomized controlled trial. Our lead author here is Andy H. Lee, and they are at Massachusetts General Hospital. And this is a brief research report regarding a best practice alert that sadly exists because the problem exists. In theory, in the emergency department, we give the first dose of antibiotics and the patient goes on to a better place for the remainder of their care. 
But we all know that doesn't happen, that patients sometimes languish in the emergency department for extended periods of time. This little study looks at a couple antibiotics, cefepime and piperacillin-tazobactam, that need to be redosed on short enough intervals that some patients with extended boarding in the emergency department may need redosing. In their little example, an epic best practice alert that would pop up for patients who needed a second dose of these medications would help reduce delays in administration. Up to 30 minutes reduction in delays in their quasi-experimental design. Their little post hoc analysis didn't find any impact on outcomes in the 400 patients included, and even though this is an obviously underpowered to detect any small harm, I doubt we would expect any harm from delays in administration of this scope. A better question, though, I think, is why do you even need this best practice alert? Why <laughs> not <you. laughs> just set the initial electronic medication order yes. to not be a one-time dose? Yes, thank why you. Why <laughs> not cefepime Q8 hours first dose now instead of cefepime times one? When the admitting team does their medication continuation, they can determine whether to continue that schedule or switch to a different antibiotic or dosing scheme of their choice. Frankly, it just seems as though they're solving a problem of their own creation. Yeah, this is exactly what I thought. It just drives me nuts. Why in the emergency department, when we're admitting these patients for sepsis and we know they need a medication that's like Q8 hours, Q12 hours, that we just order the first dose? Like, just order the dose, just order it every Q8 hours. Because you could set the default order sentence for these things. Right. <laughs> Not like it has to be a one time dose on your sepsis you know yeah. border set if boarding in the er is a problem which it can be in many places then just set it so that it's repeated doses right in my mind nothing is ever fixed by another <laughs> alert on your computer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah it's not surprising you'll make somewhat of a difference because some people will pay attention to it but for the most part people are going to click buy it and it'll be far more effective if we just put the right order in to start ah, well then yeah if this is a problem in your <laughs> hospital just do what we said, and not what they did. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you said it first, because I was about to go on a mini rant. <laughs> All right, our next article: the impact of extended focus assessment with sonography for trauma on the screening performance of the Nexus Chest Decision Rule, and the lead author is Madeline Grade. So much like the famous Nexus rule for cervical spine, the Nexus chest rule was developed to decrease the rate of unnecessary thoracic CT scans in patients with blunt trauma. Like the Nexus rule before it, the Nexus chest is made up of a number of clinical factors intended to reduce the risk of severe thoracic injury to an acceptably low level so no further imaging is required. So these authors sought to discover how the addition of POCUS, or extended FAST, could further reduce that risk. They performed a secondary analysis on prospective data from eight level one trauma centers from 2011 to 2014. And in this, they examined the performance of the decision rule with the added EFAST added to the standard rule and a chest x-ray or using the EFAST in lieu of an x-ray, how that both of these affected the nexus rule. They identified clinical nexus criteria and an adequate EFAST. Of these, 31.9% had blunt thoracic injuries and 6.4% had major injuries. So a pretty sick cohort. And they compared the Nexus chest CDI to the EFAST added to the EFAST replacement. And essentially, it didn't really do much. There were small changes in sensitivity or specificity. But in the end, it didn't really add anything to the decision rule. And now, I'm not sure if anyone would find this so surprising. Remember, the EFAST was attended for to identify patients with hypotension as 
their source of their shock. So patient presents to your emergency department with hypotension. You're patiently identifying, is there a cause of their hypotension in front of you, meaning in their lungs, in their abdomen, in their heart? You're basically looking for causes of the hypotension. Using it to identify injury without hypotension isn't really its purpose, and it doesn't really do that that effectively. Moreover, the most prevalent actual injuries here were rib fractures, which, you know, unless you're scanning all the ribs with your ultrasound, which you're not doing it with EFACs, it's not so good at picking up. Hemothorax and pneumothorax, again, if they're big, you can find it on an EFAS, but if they're small, you're not scanning every rib space to identify these. So again, you're not going to be able to find it. Pulmonary contusions, you'll see them as beelines on your ultrasound, but it doesn't count as part of your EFAS score. Sternal fractures, not picking it up on an EFAS. And spine fractures and scapular fractures, again, you're not picking it up on your EFAS. And so I think the importance here is the EFAS shouldn't really improve your diagnostic criteria or your diagnostic effectiveness of this clinical decision rules because that's not what it was built for. I love it. Boom, the E-Fast. It's not for this. <laughs> Use it for what it's intended. And don't expect it to be useful outside of its scope. Right. I mean, that's basically like our FAST exam and the E-Fast. It's like we use it way too much and expect way too much out of it. It doesn't diagnose all these things. You can do it for sport, but you're still going to get the patient to CT regardless. All right, moving along. The next article is Robotic Optical Coherence Tomography, Retinal Imaging for emergency department patients, a pilot study for emergency physicians' diagnostic performance. Our lead author here is Eileen Song, and they are at the Duke University School of Medicine. I won't spend much time on this brief report, either. But if you're interested in whether you can do optical coherence tomography in the department, perhaps using a robotic device for which the authors of this article have a patent, then this is the article for you. We all hate using the direct ophthalmoscope. Most of us aren't trained to do indirect ophthalmoscopy at the slit lamp to look at the retina. Not to mention, it requires special, very expensive lenses. The short version of this article being, yes. This article takes better, but highly specialized pictures of the retina and optic disc, requiring skill to interpret. At this well-resourced academic medical center, emergency physicians were able to pick up a lot more diagnoses than they otherwise would have using direct ophthalmoscopy but also overcalled abnormal findings almost half the time, a specificity of 63%. So it's probably a really interesting first step as far as combining image acquisition with AI image interpretation and diagnostic augmentation, but we're many, many years away from this elaborate device being generalizable and inexpensive enough to be equipped in most emergency departments. And to be completely honest, before this gets any traction, I expect there will probably just be an app and a clip-on device for phones that does nearly enough well before this ever proliferates. Yeah, and I guess what are the things we have to diagnose anyway in the emergency department, right? You basically have to diagnose anything that needs to be intervened on before they can go see an ophthalmologist in the next few days, which is a small list of things, right? And so that's all that has to be considered as well, as much as I like the idea of this because I hate bringing out that direct ophthalmoscope. Yeah, I mean, their list of emergency abnormalities are like 
optic nerve edema, and that would be great to see. And optical coherence tomography is a great way to see you know, optic nerve edema. And you're never going to see that on the direct ophthalmoscope, right. <laughs> even with a picture of it. Like it's it's pretty hard to find subtle optic disc edema sometimes. Retinal artery occlusions, I mean, I think that that's a good thing to diagnose, it's true. Retinal vein occlusions, I mean, some of these things, it's just a little hard to say. And you can't generalize anything from this specific report because you have so many specialists involved in this evaluation. But in any event, if you are interested in this device or are interested in this kind of line of diagnostic, augmented diagnosticians, this is the article for you. Indeed. All right. Our next article is Pediatric and Adolescent Obstetric and Gynecological Counters in the U.S. Emergency Rooms, a Cross-Sectional Study, and the lead author is Kirsten J. Harwood. So this was essentially a retrospective cross-sectional study utilizing the Nationwide Emergency Department Sample, or the NEDS, comprised of hospitals-owned emergency departments through the United States in 2018. And they also examined pediatric and adolescent obstetric and gynecological diagnosis that present to the emergency room. They included a sample set of female patients from 0 to 18 years old, and all obstetric and gynecological ICD-10 codes were categorized. In 2018, there were over 500,000 OB-GYN ED visits in female patients less than or equal to 18 years of age. Most of these, unsurprisingly, were discharged from the hospital, 89%. Small amount were admitted, 8%, and 2% of them were transferred. Abnormal uterine bleeding, pregnancy, and vulvovaginal disorders were the most common presentations. Admissions and transfers were more likely in patients diagnosed with ectopic pregnancy and ovarian torsion, not surprisingly. And so I think this is a well-done study for what it is. There's limitations considering it's a retrospective study, it's using a data set, and so you're obviously limited by the data you have. That being said, I think it's just a nice picture of what presents to the emergency department, how often, and what we see. It's also limited by the fact that it's 2018, and we're now in 2023, so five years later. I'm not sure how much has really changed since then, though. Yeah, it's just a really simple descriptive study, but it's a nice snapshot of sort of the scope of disorders that we see in the emergency department. I don't know if the conclusion that we need to be focused on other things besides the emergency diagnoses of ovarian torsion and ectopic pregnancy, but it would be nice to have some facility in common primary care complaints, apparently, that's sort of the gist of this. Because once you get past sort of the pregnancy and the dysmenorrhea, abnormal uterine bleeding aspects, then there's a whole host of other things that we could do our best to address, some of which are within our scope and some of which would be appropriately referred to urgent or outpatient follow-up. But if you're looking at the, the scope of the educational foundation for becoming an emergency physician, this is a probably a worthwhile thing to look at. Yeah. And I believe that brings us to our conclusion. Yeah. I think that wraps us up for another month. So as always, with any comments, questions, or concerns, we can be reached at analysaudio at asap.org. Otherwise, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Redeck, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine Podcast.